All right. Well, I want to start off our time this morning by mentioning a term, and I'm interested to see if you're familiar with this term, uh, or maybe if you've experienced a little bit of this yourself. So I'll go ahead and put it up. How many are experienced with buyer's remorse? You've had some experience in this area, or you know what we're talking about with this. A little bit, right? Okay. So for those of you who aren't familiar with what buyer's remorse is, this, this is what it is. You, 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 you find a home online that you want to go see because you tell your, your spouse, you say, sweetie, this is our, our dream home. You know, it's, it's a perfect uh, family house. It has six bedrooms and one bath. And um, <laughs> everything looks great about it, you know, and you go and you see it. And there are so many really wonderful things about it. It's nicer than your home in many respects. And you're like, this is, we need to, we need to get this. And yes, there are a few problems and, and maybe even the previous owner is there to talk to you about those problems. But when everybody's talking about it, it always seems like such, such small things, you know, just little minor issues. You might have to buy a little bit of carpet. There's a tiny little crack in the basement wall. You might have to do a little replacing of the roof in a few days. Um, everything sounds so small, you know, and it sounds, all the problems sound super manageable and all the benefits seem so huge that you just go ahead and, and, and you buy it. You jump in, you know, and you go to the closing table and you sign your name on the you know, 500 pieces of paper that you have to sign your name on. But on the very last one, with the last little flourish of the pen, it's like a big ball of sulfuric acid descends into your stomach and just camps there, you know? And you're like, what did I just do, right? I, I, we, we own a home, you know? And not only that, we own a home that's, that's got stuff that's wrong with it, and we're going to have to do stuff with it. And then you start thinking, man, maybe it's not the right neighborhood, and, and, and maybe this wasn't the right thing. And you start kind of second-guessing yourself, you know? And you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning with a you know, cold sweat. You've been having nightmares about the house, and, you know, you, that little tiny crack in the basement wall, you were dreaming that it, you know, became the Grand Canyon, and water was flooding in. And, you know, you've got Lowe's open on your computer, and you're trying to figure out all the building materials it's going to take to just make this house livable now, you know, and, and uh, that's, that's buyer's remorse, you know, you go, why did I do this? I don't understand it. Buyer's remorse has its own slogan, right? What was I thinking, right? I don't understand why I did this. I, I, it seemed like a good decision at the time, but now I'm stuck with it, right? And I, I'm pretty familiar with this, as a matter of fact, because I'm pretty impulsive. I, I have to have Wendy with me if we go um, shopping for something, because I always see all the benefits, because I want to buy whatever it is. I don't even care what it is. I want to get it. Sounds good to me, you know? And then it's only after the fact that I realized there were major problems. And so I'm not 100% sure that this term is, is scientific enough. So since I experienced this a lot, I've decided to create a new term. This, is, this will bless you all. Here's my new term for buyer's remorse. I'm going to call it PBSDS, Post Big Stupid Decision Syndrome. And I'll tell you about the, the greatest moment I ever had of post-big stupid decision syndrome was I was growing up in this church and I got to the college and career you know, age and we were in this college and career Sunday school group and, and every year they would take a ski trip. Now, I'm not tremendously athletic. I, I don't have a lot of experience doing a lot of athletic things and I certainly didn't have any experience skiing, but I wanted to go on the trip. I wanted to hang out with my friends and so I signed up for it and they said that there would be ski lessons available, which I thought at first was a good thing until I realized that these ski lessons are mostly like an instructor and a group of seven-year-olds. And I pictured myself, a six foot two inch, 18 year old guy in a line of seven year olds trying to learn how to snow plow. And I had this picture in my head of all the people in my Sunday school class looking at me and laughing. And I said, well, that's not gonna happen, right? 
So I decided to just do some research. I mean, after all, how hard um, can it be? And so I went online. This was like 2001. There wasn't as much information online then as there is now. And, and I did find one video uh, on skiing that I thought was, was pretty helpful. I, I thought I pretty much learned everything I need to know about how to ski from the video, and it was from the Olympics. <laughs> and what this person did was they took their ski sticks and and they tucked them under their arms like this, and they crouched down, and they just went straight. And I thought, I've been worried about nothing. This looks really easy. I mean, anybody could do that, you know? So we get to the, the resort. Um, my friends and I were all there, and, and we're all kind of getting our gear and all this. You know how it goes. And um, making plans on what slopes to hit first. And they had this one slope, and it wasn't, you know, the, the hardest slope there, and it wasn't a bunny slope. It was kind of in the middle, and everybody was sort of agreed they wanted to start there. And I said, no problem. That sounds good to me. And uh, so I went up there with them. Now, about ski lifts. At this particular ski resort, they had a rule at the time. You could ride up to the top of the slope on the ski lift. But you know, if perhaps, not saying this would happen to you, but if perhaps you started to think as they lift you up Mount Everest that you've made a ghastly terrible decision to do this and that you just wish you could get back on the level ground and as you start to look down, you realize for the first time that you're afraid of heights. Say that should happen to you, I'm not saying it would, but say that it did, you would realize as you got to the top, there is no way to get down. And so I just gently, you know, I sort of move over to the attendant there at the top of the slope, and I sort of ask out of earshot of the rest of my group, what, what happens if somebody needs to get down the, you know, the mountain after they get up here, you know? And she said, well, then they have to bring one of those little, you know, ski, what, what, what do they call them, snowmobiles up here, and then you have to ride down on the back of it, you know, on your, on, on your way back. And I thought to myself, okay, well, I was trying to avoid everybody laughing at me being in a line of seven-year-olds. I don't think me riding on the back of a, you know, a, a snowmobile on the way back is any better than that. So I, I said to myself, you can do this. You watch the video. <laughs> so I mustered up all my courage, and I took my ski sticks, and I tucked them under my arms, and I crouched down, and I went straight. Now, if you haven't been on a ski slope, I should tell you that most people who have any experience with skiing, they go from side to side. They do this. So while everybody else was doing this, I was doing this, right? <laughs> and as I went down that slope or at 200 or 300 miles an hour, <laughs> I began to experience a little twinge of buyer's remorse. This was a big, stupid decision. And I want out, but the problem is, once you're plummeting toward the ground at that rate of speed, there's not much you can do, which was really sad for a poor gentleman who was standing at the bottom of the slope. Because as I arrived at the end of the slope, I became closer to him than I ever anticipated getting to another man, because I ended up laying down face on top of him, right? <laughs> and his coffee was kind of all over the place. And as I looked up, no joke, as I looked up, all of my college and career Sunday school class was standing in a semicircle, right? And I thought, good job, Jonathan. You really avoided embarrassment that way, you know? But isn't that how it is in life, right? We make a decision. It seems like a good decision up front. Maybe we feel like we have all the information. And to, for whatever reason, once we get into it, we wish we could get out of it. Once we're into it, it's like I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. You know I'm not here to talk to you about 
buyer's remorse and buying a home. I'm not here to talk to you about making you know, silly decisions and ski lessons, although learn from my experience, you should take a lesson if you're up there for the first time. I'm here to talk to you about people who make decisions in life, and then once they make that decision, they feel stuck and they can't get out. Maybe the number one thing that people tell me when they come into my office for life or relationship coaching is that they feel stuck. They're like, I'm, I got myself into this, now I don't know how to get out. I had a person in my office recently, he said, help me understand why I keep getting into the cycle of bad decision making. And I said, well, why do you think you do, right? Because this is what people do who do what I do, right? We sit across from people and we just turn the question back over to them, right? Um, and he said, well, I don't know. He said, here's what I do know. He says, I know God didn't lead me into this, and I know my common sense didn't lead me into this. And in that moment, I felt a little twinge of conviction because I thought, man, I get that. I get that. I've made a lot of stupid decisions that I know God didn't lead me here, and my common sense sure didn't lead me here. So why does that happen, and, and what can we do about it? That's kind of the questions that I want to answer in the talk today. And in order to do that, I want to introduce you to a character in the Bible, and, and we're going to walk through a little story. But in order to do that, I've got to give you a little bit of setup. Uh, so here's, here's kind of the, the brief overview that will get us into the story. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that God's people um, were in a nation called Israel. And God blessed his people, and, and, and they, they struggled with following him. Even when he was blessing them for following him, they, they struggled with following him. So they would kind of go back and forth whether or not they wanted to follow God, and that was a problem. And for quite a while, God was the king of these people, and that was the best arrangement they ever had. But at a certain point, they were determined to have a, a human being as a king like all the other kingdoms did. And so you know how, that, uh, how the story went. They ended up with King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon. We've talked in messages at New Spring about all of these guys. But here's what you should know. After King Solomon died... The kingdom, there was a civil war within the kingdom and it split into the north kingdom and the south kingdom. And it was kind of split like this. There were 12 tribes in Israel. The north kingdom ended up with 10 of the 12 tribes. So if you get this in your mind, it, is, it was the much larger of the two nations. And then the southern kingdom got two of the 12 tribes and that was called Judah. So Israel was the north kingdom, the big kingdom, and they had a king, and Judah was the southern kingdom, the small kingdom, and they would have a king. That's why sometimes when you're reading the Bible, it seems like Israel has two kings at once. Well, well they do. So um, God gives each of these kings a report card. At some point in the scripture, God will tell us whether this was a good king or a bad king. And what you should know is that the big kingdom in the north, they always had bad kings. When God evaluated them, he said every single one of them was a bad king and they did evil in God's sight. But Judah, the small kingdom, uh, they had some good kings and some bad there was about 40 kings in all for the time that the kingdoms were divided, north and south. And about five to seven of the, of the um, kings in Judah were good, were good kings. So this tells you that those were outliers, right? Out of, out of the 40, you only got five or seven that are good kings. And I want to talk to you about one of those people. I want to talk to you about a king named Jehoshaphat. And here's what the Bible says about Jehoshaphat. It says that he was a good king. He followed the example of his father Asa, and he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. Some of the good kings didn't even get that good of a write-up. For, for God to say he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight was a big deal. And that meant that he was, he was a standout. He was a standout king, somebody that, that later on God would say he was very devoted to God as a king. So, Let's take a pause here for a minute. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about Jehoshaphat. But I want to talk to you about who was the king in the north kingdom. Remember I said that all of those kings were uh, bad guys. But when Jehoshaphat was king in Judah, Israel had its worst king 
of all time. His name was Ahab. And I want to show you what the Bible says about King Ahab. The Bible says that Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. So he was someone who really, really ticked God off. Well, how, does, how did he do that? I mean, that's a pretty massive statement to say that you, that you provoked the anger of God. How did Ahab provoke the anger of God? Well, just briefly, Ahab married a woman from another nation um, whose name was Jezebel. And, and, you know, that tells you something right off the bat because, you know, we don't exactly name our beloved daughters Jezebel. I, I, I don't get invited to the hospital much for a doting mom and dad to say, you know, hey, here, we'd like to introduce you to our new bundle of joy. This is Jezebel, right? Um, there's a reason for that, because the name Jezebel is tied to this woman in the Bible. She was a terrible woman. She was mean, vindictive, murderous. But, but one of the things specifically I want you to know is that she came from a nation where they worshipped a god named Baal. Now, Baal, and how does this strike you for America in the 21st century? Baal, for her nation, was the god of prosperity and sex. Her other nations had many gods, and they would pray to whatever god Um, was the god of whatever it was they wanted. So if they were sick, they would pray to the god of health. If they needed uh, their crops to grow, they would pray to the god of rain. They had a very transactional view of God. You just had to find the right combination, find the right god to pray to, pray the right way, and you get what you want. And so imagine this. Baal is the god of prosperity and sex, and this was the main god that was worshipped in her country. When she marries Ahab, she brings Baal worship over to Israel, where they have been in the past worshiping Yahweh, the true god. Now, to give you an idea of how different these religions were, in worshiping Baal, there were all kinds of perverted sexual practices that were part of that worship. The, the, the temple for Baal worship actually had on-staff prostitutes. Um, and as a matter of fact, for those who were very interested in trying to convince Baal to give them prosperity, many of them would sacrifice one of their own children. Right? They, they would actually kill one of their children in a sacrifice procedure to try to get prosperity from Baal. It was a messed up religion. So now she comes in and some people in Israel are interested in this new religion that's just shown up. Some people are still worshiping Yahweh. Some people are on the fence. Most of them were on the fence. And so Ahab decided to just put an end to the the tension and he decided I'm just going to create a new religion that takes this Baal worship stuff that we've got and takes the worship of Yahweh and we're just going to put it all in the same box and I'm going to open up a seminary. It'll be the seminary of Ahab where uh, I can train pastors and how to how to, you know, be ecumenical and they can they can, you know, help people worship Baal if they want and they can help people worship God if they want and everybody will get along. And by the way, I hear a lot of people ask me a lot of times about why can't all religions just get along? Why can't everybody play nicely in the sandbox? And I certainly believe everybody should respect individuals regardless of their religion, but there's a reason why you can't put all religions together and just make it all work as one big group, and that is because to worship something, you have to give it preeminence. To worship something, you have to put it first. And so this is what God was trying to tell Israel the whole time. If you want to worship the true God, you've got to turn your back on Baal. If you want to worship Baal, you've got to turn your back on God. But at some point, you're going to have to decide. But because Ahab had done so much to try to convince people of something that was not true, that they could just worship whatever they wanted so long as they did it the way that he wanted them to do it, God was very, very upset with him. And 
he was very upset with God. Check this out. At some point, uh, Elijah, who was one of God's prophets, came to Ahab to talk to him about this bad decision he was making and where he stood with God. And when he came to, um, when Elijah got to Ahab, Ahab said, so, my enemy, you have found me. I mean, anytime you call God's representative your enemy, that pretty much draws the lines pretty clearly. I mean, he's basically saying, God is on one team, I'm on another team, and we're in a conflict with each other. And Elijah said, yep, I found you. I've come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. And actually, it says no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did. What does it mean to sell yourself? The Bible says, the Bible asks the question, what does it gain a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Basically, God is saying, what would be worth trading your soul for? that part of us that interacts with God, what what would be worth giving up your opportunity to link arms with God in life and to go his path? And God, the, the implied answer is nothing would be worth that, but Ahab didn't believe that. He wanted the sex, he wanted the prosperity, he wanted all of these things that, that he knew he would have to turn his back on God to have, and so he was willing to make that bargain. So I don't know if you kind of get this sort of juxtaposition. In the Northern Kingdom, we've got this King Ahab who God was upset with, and he was upset with God, and he had his back turned on God, and he was doing things that were very offensive to God. And in the southern kingdom, we have Jehoshaphat, who's working very hard to try to please God and to try to serve God um, in the right way. And this is in 2 Chronicles 17, you can see it, because the Bible says the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father's early years and did not worship Baal. He sought his father's God and obeyed his commands instead of following the evil practices of the kingdom of Israel. That would be instead of being like Ahab. So the Lord established Jehoshaphat's control over the kingdom of Judah, and all the people of Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat. So he was a, he was a loved king, and he became very wealthy and highly esteemed. And look at this. Remember, the, 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 Elijah said that Ahab had sold himself to evil. But look, it says that Jehoshaphat was deeply committed to the ways of the Lord. So if Ahab was sold out to evil, Jehoshaphat was sold out to God. And he removed the pagan shrines and Asherah poles from Judah. So instead of trying to take a bunch of different worship, idol worship and God and put that together, he was even saying, let's get rid of any of the idol worship stuff that's going on because we need to worship the true God. So it's a very, very different picture between these two kings. And so far, everything is, is going really well for Jehoshaphat. In fact, the Bible says that Jehoshaphat sent missionaries into the countries around him to, to teach them about the true God. And those countries around him and nations around him, they listened. And they believed what they were hearing. And they said, well, listen, if this God that you're talking about is the God of Judah, then we don't want to mess with Judah. We don't want to get into that kind of fight. And so they would send gifts to Jehoshaphat to say, we don't want any trouble with you. And listen, if you ever get to the point in life where your enemies are sending you presents and saying, we just want you to know we don't want any trouble with you, that's a good place to be. Jehoshaphat had a lot of stuff going for him. He had wealth. People liked him a lot. Now he doesn't have to worry about any of the surrounding nations coming and attacking him. He had one little nagging problem, the northern kingdom. And they'd had skirmishes before. After all, it hadn't been that long since they'd had a civil war. And he didn't know whether or not Ahab would just get it in his head one day to come out and attack them and try to take over the whole kingdom. He'd worked so hard to establish. That was like 
everything else that had happened that was good was really hard to enjoy because they really weren't safe as long as the northern kingdom was there and the northern kingdom didn't have any reason not to attack them. And that's kind of where the whole story goes sideways. Because I want to take you to 2 Chronicles 18. The Bible says that he was wealthy, he was highly esteemed, but he made an alliance with Ahab by having his son marry Ahab's daughter. I don't know if you're like me, but when I read that, something just sinks in my stomach and I go, what just happened? Everything was going so well. I mean, you were, you were going on the right path and, and, and God was blessing you. I mean, God was giving Jehoshaphat wealth and he was giving him, him respect of the people and everything was going so well. And all of a sudden, he does something that just seems like the dumbest decision of all time, to take his son who was supposed to inherit the throne and who would inherit the throne of Judah one day and marry him off to Jezebel's daughter. It just didn't make any sense. If you sat with Jehoshaphat and said, why did you do this? I have a pretty good idea. I know maybe the sort of answer he might give you. And the reason I say this is because this is my life. I sit across from people who come to talk to me and sometimes, sometimes they bring in bad decisions. They want to talk to me about these bad decisions and, and they come in with humility and they want to understand it. And so we start to process the question of why? Why, why do we make this wrong turn? And I almost always get some flavor of this answer. I had a good reason to make a bad decision. Because I'll ask him, this decision that you made, at the time, did you feel like it was the right thing to do? Uh, not really. I mean, did you feel like it was the best thing? No. At the time, there was part of you that said, this, this isn't good. This isn't the, yeah, absolutely, there was a part of me that said that. Well, then, if that was the case, well, what, what do you feel like made you, made you still go ahead and cross that line? Well, you don't understand, I, ha I had a reason. I had a reason. Hasn't been that long since I sat across from somebody who told me, yes, having this affair with this person probably isn't the best thing, but you don't understand the, the, you know, the, the marriage that I was in, it was, it was very hostile and, and, and my spouse was very you know, bad influence on, on my kids and, and you know, just a, you know, I was miserable all the time and it was, it was a bad situation. And so yes, I know that having an affair is bad and I know that the fact that we're getting a divorce now is, is bad and all that, but you don't understand. The, the person that I'm with now is a so much better influence and so much nicer person that you know, this person's impact on my family is going to be so helpful that in the end, it's all going to be okay. I have peace. I'm, oh man, if I had a, a nickel for every time somebody said, I know it's not a right decision, but I have peace about it. What would give us a, a peace about a bad decision? It, it always hinges on this hope. I'll show you this because I think this is really important because we have to know how to recognize it when we see it. There's this hope that in the end, my good reason will make my bad decision a good decision. Somehow, the fact that I feel like I have some justification for what I'm doing is going to, at some point, flip this whole deal so that what was a bad decision in the first place is going to turn out to be a wise decision. Jehoshaphat wanted safety for his people. There's nothing wrong with that. He wanted peace among the nations. There's nothing wrong with that. He wanted to know that everything that he had worked for and built would be sustainable. There's nothing wrong with that. And yet, to make a bad decision, to make all that happen, doesn't make it a good decision. And that's what Jehoshaphat was going to have to learn the hard way. I, I kind of have a, a, an interesting time imagining this in my head, because I do a lot of 
of weddings, and so I'm, or I work at least with a lot of premarital couples who talk about the experience of going through their weddings, and I know how stressful the arrangements of weddings can be and how stressful the wedding day can be, and so in my head, I just have this, uh, this picture of Ahab and Jehoshaphat trying to work out the wedding details for these kiddos, right? Because, you know, Jehoshaphat calls and says, hey, buddy, you know, we need to get this wedding thing figured out when you guys are going to come down here to Judah and we can get this wedding put on, and Ahab says, listen, buddy, I appreciate the, I appreciate the offer, and that place, you know, the little... The little tiny palace that you have down there is just great. It's fantastic, you know, wonderful. Uh, but, you know, our palace is so much bigger, and we've got so much more stuff that we can do up here. And, you know, the kids have been having so much fun staying up here, and your son really likes it up here in Israel. That I really feel like you guys just ought to come on up here, and we'll do, the, we'll, we'll, we'll do it upright. We'll have a huge party. And what's Jehoshaphat going to say? No. And he goes into Israel. He didn't ever even want to be in Israel. He knew all the crazy stuff that was going on up there. He's got to go there for the wedding. After all, he's the one who figured this out. Let's, let's marry the you know, kids up and we'll have this alliance because that's how it was done at the time. If you wanted to have peace with another country, you married somebody from your royal family to somebody from their royal family. It was just how the game was played. And I think he kept repeating it to himself the whole time he was going through this crazy wedding. And he has to walk past 10 idols on his way to the, to the ceremony. And he hears the bogus priest from Ahab Seminary standing there and doing the wedding. And all of the craziness that tried to blend in the Baal stuff with the God stuff. And I think he's keep continually telling himself, this is how the game is played. This is how the game is played. This is what we have to do to have peace in our kingdom. It's going to be okay. In the long run, this is all going to work out. And then it wasn't too much, long, too much later after that that he's, I mean, he's out. He, after the wedding is over, he gets out of there. I'm going home. I'm going back to Judah where the world makes sense. But then he, the phone rings again. Ahab calls him up and says, hey, I would really like you to come for a visit. And what's he going to say? No. So the Bible says he went to Samaria to visit Ahab. And Ahab had a big barbecue. They had a bunch of sheep and goats and cattle that they had to eat. And, you know, it doesn't seem so bad now. They're having a good dinner. Everybody's getting along. And, you know, they're family now after all. But then Ahab enticed Jehoshaphat to join forces with him to recover Ramoth-Gilead. Oh, we won't spend uh, much time with this, but you should know that this was not Jehoshaphat's fight. It wasn't Judah's fight. This battle that was going on with Ramoth-Gilead, that was an Israel thing. That was a border wars, turf wars thing that was going on with their kingdom. And Judah really didn't have any reason to be involved with this. But after all... They're in an alliance now. They're family now. If Ahab asks, what's he going to say? No. He says, uh, all right. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, after all, I don't think in my, in my mind, I really don't think Jehoshaphat ever pictured Ahab needing his help. I think he always figured the reason to do this marriage alliance thing was in case, you know, they ever needed the big kingdom's help. It's kind of like joining forces with Bill Gates. You know, you partner up with Bill Gates, and Bill Gates says, what I have is yours and what you have is mine. You partner up, and you have this shared bank account. And then he calls you up the next day and says, I'm really highly leveraged. Can I borrow 50 or 100 bucks? And you go, wait a minute. We got into this partnership for you to help me, not for me to help you. I, I really think that's what Jehoshaphat was feeling at the time. But again, he has to say, yes, he's in this messed up situation. And so Jehoshaphat says, of course, you and I are as one, and my troops are your troops. After all, we're family. We will certainly join you in battle. I mean, I think as these words are coming out of his mouth, he has to be saying, this is so stupid, this is so stupid, this is so stupid. And he's thinking, well, you know, there may be one way out of this. He says, uh, but first, let's find out what the Lord says. 
Well, maybe it was an attempt to get out of it, or it might have just been that this was the way Jehoshaphat did things. And I think he did try to find out what the Lord wanted him to do whenever he was getting ready to make a big decision. I think that was his habit. And so he says, let's call in a prophet of the Lord and, and find out what God says about this big battle that we're talking about. And so Ahab calls in some preachers, but he called in the 400 guys that were proud graduates of Ahab Seminary, and he asked them, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or should we hold back? Now keep in mind, these 400 guys are on Ahab's payroll. He's paying them. They are not connected to God, even though they say that they are. And they know that he wants to go to war with Ramoth Gilead. So surprise, surprise, when he asks them, should we go to war? Look at what they say. Yes, go right ahead. God will give the king the victory. And this tells you how much trouble Jehoshaphat knew he was in at this point. Jehoshaphat said, but isn't there also a prophet of the Lord here? I mean, we should ask him the same question. I mean, Jehoshaphat knew this isn't cool. These guys, are, they're biased. We need, the whole point here is to find out what does God think. And you have to understand, Ahab could care less, couldn't care less about what God thought. And Jehoshaphat's getting that. But he says, now I really want us to find a real prophet. And in the Bible, a prophet was somebody that God gave messages to and the prophet gave messages to people. So, you know, what Jehoshaphat's saying is, I want to know what God says. And this is Ahab's response. He says, well, there is one more man who could consult the Lord for us, but I hate him. You want to talk about a, a, a warning flag that should have told Jehoshaphat, look, you're going down a bad path here. This isn't good. He says, I, you know, because Jehoshaphat said, we need to find out what a real prophet would say. And he says, we do have a real prophet, but I can't stand the guy. And then Ahab starts to whine because he's really good at whining. He says, he never prophesies anything but trouble for me. Warning number two, right? I mean, after all, if this person always says you're headed for a bad future should have told Jehoshaphat, grab your wallet and run as fast as you can for the nearest exit sign, right? So he said his name is Micaiah, and Jehoshaphat replied, hey, that's not a way a king should talk. So he's saying, you shouldn't say that you hate this guy, right? Um, let's, let's bring him in and see what he has to say. And so Ahab called for Micaiah, and this is what he said. Micaiah said, in a vision I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd, and the Lord said their master has been killed. So basically the prophet is saying, Ahab... You're going to die. Um, and send them home in peace. And then Ahab whines again. He says, didn't I tell you? He never prophesies anything but trouble for me. Ahab had this weird thing, right? He didn't understand that the, the fight he was picking wasn't with the prophets. He didn't understand that the fight he was picking was with God. But he always somehow fixated on the prophets. It was always, he was the original shooting the messenger person, right? He just would get fixated on somebody who came to give him the bad news, even though the bad news came from God. And if Ahab had been smart, he would have realized that the person who created the universe wasn't too worried about being in a fight with him, right? So basically, Micaiah says, look, the reason that your guys are saying that you're going to be successful in battle is that the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of your prophets. For the Lord has pronounced your doom, warning flag number three. Right? Jehoshaphat, are you listening? He just said, the Lord has pronounced your doom. This isn't going to go well. Ahab's going to die. You're going to lose. And you're, you're doomed to failure. Right? And then Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, this is one of you know, Ahab's uh, paid preachers, walked up to Micaiah and slapped him across the face. Warning flag number four. Right? I don't think in any other circumstance Jehoshaphat would have let that happen. 
You want to talk about violating your conscience? Jehoshaphat said, let's call for this guy because I care what he has to say. And the guy was slapped in front of his presence. I think it violated his conscience and no other circumstance would he have let it fly. But he's in too deep and he just has to let it go. I'm talking to somebody in this room and you're in a situation where you are part of a crowd where things are said about God and, 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 and people are, are talking about things that are sacred in such a way that in any other context you wouldn't let it go. But you're in too deep with this crowd. And so it's like people are slapping God across the face and you just sit there and say, well, I can't do much about that, can I? And so after that, it even gets worse. Ahab says, arrest him. Take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to my son Joash, and give them this order from the king. Put this man in prison, warning flag number five. You asked for this prophet to come in, and now this guy that you're in a partnership with is telling is having him put in prison, and beyond that, he's, telling, he's, he's giving these orders, feed him nothing but bread and water until I return safely from the battle. I mean, this is craziness. And then it even gets, if, it, if it's even possible, it gets worse than that. Because Jehoshaphat lives through all of this and just says, well, I'm in too deep, I gotta stay in this, and so they go into battle together. It says, when King Ahab uh, and Jehoshaphat led their armies against Ramoth Gilead, the king of Israel said this to Jehoshaphat, now get this, he says, as we go into battle, I will disguise myself so no one will recognize me, but you, you wear your royal robes. If I'm Jehoshaphat, I'm saying, well, Ahab, why don't you just paint a gargantuan target on me too while you're at it, right? Because king's robes were purple, they were bright, they just, you could point out somebody who was royalty in a second. Everybody else was in sort of burlap colored garments, and so the thing about it was, it was very clear, it should have been very clear to Jehoshaphat that what Ahab was offering was an opportunity for him to be the decoy. Your job is to be the decoy. You go out there and get killed so I can stay alive, because after all, that prophet might have been right, and I'm trying to outsmart God, I'm just going to try to fly below the radar. Which, by the way, spoiler alert, he does die. Um, but it, it, interestingly enough, it's a, it's a lesson for us about how, how much God means business when he says something's going to happen the way that it happens. Because later on in this battle, even though Ahab thinks he's underneath the radar, even though he's all disguised, one of the soldiers from the Aramean army just takes a bow and arrow and just shoots randomly at the army of Israel and it hits Ahab and, and ends up killing him. How, how is that for reminding us that God is going to do what God says he's going to do regardless of how we try to work our way around it, right? But anyhow, I'm not, not interested in, in Ahab as much as I'm interested in, in Jehoshaphat. They go into battle and they're disguised and the Aramean chari chariot commanders, they see Jehoshaphat in his royal robes and they went after him because they thought it was Ahab. But Jehoshaphat is calling out, think about this for embarrassing, embarrassment in a situation. He's calling out and the Lord saved him, but he's literally calling back to these other guys who are chasing him. I'm not Ahab, you've got the wrong guy. And even more embarrassing, once they realize they have the wrong guy, they decide he's not worth chasing. Because it says once they realized he was not the king of Israel, they stopped chasing him. So Jehoshaphat has his embarrassing moment like I had as I was laying face down in the snow and looking up at my friends who came on the ski trip with me. That's where I'd like to sit down and talk to Jehoshaphat as he, you know, makes it into the safety zone in his chariot and he sits down on the floor of his chariot with his head in his hands. He's sweating. He's panting. He came about this close to losing his life about 10 minutes earlier. And I want to ask him, why? Why did you get this far into this crazy of a situation? But then again, why do I make bad decisions that lead me into more bad decisions, that lead me into more bad decisions that eventually I find myself going, why am I stuck? Let me show you a, 
a verse in the Bible that I think can really help us out with making more sense of this situation, and it's in Hebrews um, chapter 12, verse 1. It's right after the Bible's talked about many of the heroes of the faith, and then it says, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, and especially the sin that so easily trips us up. I wanna talk to you for just a few minutes about these words, because I've known this verse my entire life, but I've never really taken the time to study what Bible scholars tell us about what the original language is conveying here. That word that's translated sin there doesn't mean an out-and-out rebellion against God. It doesn't mean facing off to God. What it means is compromising the standard. It means there's a standard, there there is a right but we sell ourselves short of right. We try to compromise it. We back off. We, in, in a sense, we miss the mark. There was a target that represented the right thing, but we were off of the bullseye. But this is what's really interesting, is we have this English phrase that easily trips us up, but Bible scholars tell us that this is kind of like a military term, and it would have been used in a situation where you're facing another military, an opposing force, and you get drawn into the conflict, but as you get drawn into the conflict, they rout you, and they come around, and now you cannot retreat. You're stuck. In a sense, the word means to surround, to control, and to squeeze. I picked up a little mousetrap on my way to, to preach this weekend. I don't know if you're familiar with these kinds of mousetraps. It's a kind that is, exists for those of us that do not like to see or touch the nice little animals once they are, are caught. And the way this thing works is you, you spin it, and there's a little spring that loads. And once it gets you know, all set up like it's supposed to be, there's this little hole that leads into sort of this mouse house of horrors, and um, the way you get them in there is there's this little compartment on the underneath side where you put some bait. They recommend peanut butter, which is something to uh, attract the you know, little mouse to come in there. And once the mouse comes in the little mouse house and starts to eat the bait, what happens is as they're eating the bait, they trigger this little mechanism that spins it shut. And now they can't get out, and other things happen to the mouse, but we'll leave that for a nicer, nicer day to discuss. Um, But this is what the Bible is saying happens when we compromise the standard, is we go into a situation thinking that we can get out as easily as we got in, but once we get into it, it spins shut and we can't get out. I've talked to so many people who walked into a bad situation thinking they could walk out. Yeah, I know it's probably not the right thing to get into this amazing amount of debt, but you know, we have a plan, we're gonna get out of it. And the way that they're talking to me about it, it's almost like we're walking into this, but we're gonna walk out. Or I talk to somebody who's getting into an affair and it's like, but I I can manage this, I can handle this. It's like he's saying, I'm walking into this, but I can walk out. Or I'm talking to somebody who's who's making really bad decisions with their group of friends. It's like, well, I walked into this, but I'm gonna walk out. But what the Bible is saying is whenever we compromise the standard, we may walk in, but we're gonna have to fight our way out because it's gonna surround us and it's gonna trap us and it's gonna squeeze us. And that's where Jehoshaphat messed up a little bit because he didn't understand that he wasn't gonna be able to get out as easily as he was able to get in. An interesting thing about these little traps and and about the bait that you, you put in it, right? I read a little thing by somebody who was explaining how to bait these traps. This is a lot more literature on how to load mouse traps than I ever imagined anybody would ever have time to write. But he said about this, he said, it it can be nearly anything. And this was the point of what he was writing. He said, it can be nearly anything. He said, it just needs to be sufficiently attractive to a mouse so as to cause them to enter what would otherwise be a dangerous and unfamiliar environment. And I thought, man, that is brilliant. 
Because that is what Satan does all the time. Is Satan tries to figure out what would be sufficiently attractive to you to lure you into what would otherwise be an unfamiliar and dangerous environment. Josh Fat didn't have any business being in Israel. He didn't have any business being in the northern kingdom. You should have left it alone. It would have otherwise been an unfamiliar and a dangerous environment. Sitting next to Ahab at a, at a table at a feast, that was a dangerous and unfamiliar environment. But there was his good reason. There was something that was attractive enough to draw him in. It was bait. Do you know what the definition of bait is? The definition of bait is a good reason to make a bad decision. So that's what we want. We want the mouse to think that there's a really good reason to go in here and make what would otherwise be a bad decision. See, when somebody comes in my office and says, I know it's not the right thing, but I have a good reason, that's not the, the truth of the situation. The truth, is, the truth of the situation is they're being baited. They're being baited. Because Satan knows that they wouldn't walk into a bad decision if there was no good reason. He's got to give them a good reason to do it. But as soon as they get in, it's going to snap shut on them. I want to show you this verse. Uh, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. God says, today I'm going to give you a choice between a blessing and a curse. You will be blessed if you obey the commands of the Lord that I'm giving you today, but you will be cursed if you reject the commands of the Lord your God and turn away from him and worship gods you have not known before. So God is saying, and by the way, the words blessing and curse there just mean, they're talking about how God is predicting a future for someone. Whenever God says, I'm, I'm giving you a blessing, he's saying, I'm predicting a good future for you, and a curse is predicting a bad future. Because sometimes people say, God sounds kind of vindictive here. I'm going to you know, bless you. It sounds like he's saying he's going to reward you for doing what he wants you to do and punish you for not doing what he, what he doesn't want you to do. He just sounds like a, a, a strict parent. You have to understand, that's not what this is about. God is the God of the universe. When he gives us instructions, he gives us instructions to let us know how to get to blessing. Not that he's going to give us blessing because we just made him happy. He wants us to be blessed, so he gives us instructions on how to get to the destination of blessing, just as MapQuest or Google Maps will give you a list of directions to get to a specific destination. It's not that Google Maps is trying to control your life. It's not that they're trying to manipulate you into doing what they want you to do so that then they can feel like they're powerful and all-controlling. It is that if you want to get to that destination, you have to follow these directions. If you don't follow this, these directions, there's nothing personal. It's just that you're not going to be at that destination. And God is trying to say, if you want to, go, if you want to get to the destination of blessing, you've got to follow my directions. If you don't follow my directions, you're not going to get to the destination of blessing. It's not personal. It's just what it is. But God wants to bless you. As a matter of fact, I want you to remember this. If, if, if this is all you remember from, from today's talk, I want you to remember this. Satan only wants to bait you because he knows God wants to bless you. See, the thing about it is Satan doesn't care about you. As far as he's concerned, you're just a, a pawn in a cosmic chess game between him and God that he's going to lose, by the way. All he's concerned about is how to counteract the effects of what God wants to do in your life. That's all he's interested in. So if Satan is baiting you, it's because you are in the pathway, in the slip zone for God's blessing, and Satan doesn't want you to get there. That's why it's so important that we sell out to the right choice. I think Jehoshaphat eventually kind of got it. He still made some mistakes later in life, but, but, but I still think he kind of got it because... When he came back to his kingdom after that embarrassing situation with Ahab, he sent teachers out to all of the people in his kingdom with a message. And this is what he said. I want you to tell them that you must always act in the fear of the Lord with faithfulness and an undivided heart. He's saying, I'll tell you what went wrong. What went wrong was my heart got divided. Sure, part of me knew what the right thing to do, but the other part of me got really attracted to a bad choice. 
And he's saying at some point you've got to decide which part of your heart you're going to go with. I don't have time to talk much about it um, because I'm already in overtime. But many, many of you know I was in the automotive industry before I went into the ministry. I was in the service side of things. I was a mechanic for a while, and then I was in the service management side of things for a while. I didn't end up there because I had any aptitude towards being a mechanic, as many people will attest. Um, I, I ended up there because I was running away from God. When, I, when Wendy and I were first married, um, I really felt a strong call to the ministry, but I didn't want to do that. I knew how much time and commitment that, that takes because I'd watched it as I'd grown up. I didn't really feel like I had the skill set. I didn't think I was the right personality for that job. So I wanted to do something else. And, and I had a very clear feeling in my spirit that I was walking away from what God wanted me to do. And I went to tech school, and, and that was a commitment. You spend a lot of money on tech school, so then you feel like you have to, to go forward with that and get the job in the automotive industry, which I did. And then kind of once you do that, you sort of feel obligated to just keep on going in that. And so I spent years in an industry that I had absolutely no affinity for because I started with one bad decision, and I sort of felt like I was stuck in a pattern of those. So eventually, we were at you know an amazing church that I would eventually work at, First Baptist Church of Edmond. And... Um, I had a mentor there, my Sunday school teacher, who really took me under wing, and um, much of what God has done in my life is Donnie has, has a role in in those early years. And um, so I was sitting next to Donnie, and it was after church, and choir practice was going. Wendy was practicing with the choir, and I was sitting in that building. I was sitting right about there with Donnie just waiting for a rehearsal to be over. And I had been offered an opportunity to interview for a job in Wichita in a completely different industry, and yet again, an industry I had really no interest in. But it was a good opportunity. It was a good interview. I'd be making good money. And I was so sick of the car industry that I was getting ready to drive up to Wichita for the interview. And I told my, my mentor, I said, I'm going to go do this interview. Um, and see if I can get this job. And he said, you're crazy. And I said, well, thanks for that constructive feedback. Um, and he said, no. He's like, you've told me you're called to the ministry and that you've been running away from God. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, how is this going to make that better? And I said, well, I, I kind of have to do this. I really don't have, I said, I don't have a, an opportunity. I, I don't have a ministerial degree. Nobody in a church is offering me a job. I don't have the skill set. I have nothing to offer a, a, a church. I just need to do the, whatever is the logical next thing. And he said, you know, Jonathan, here's your problem. He said, at a point you were walking with God and you were doing what God asked you to do. And then there was a point where you decided to go off and do your own thing. And he said, you're never going to experience happiness until you loop back and you go meet God where you left him and you start back at that point. See, the reason that we keep making bad decisions and feel like we have to is because we don't want to face the pain of the missteps that we've made. We don't want to have to cover that ground in reverse that we went in the wrong direction. But my friend was right. He was right. The thing I needed to do was go back to that moment where I had made a bad choice and make a good one. So that weekend, I walked the aisle at that church, and I told my pastor, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to follow God. I want to do the right thing. And the last 11 years of my life have been the most incredible years that I can imagine. God has done amazing things. I just want to tell you, God has a future for you, but if, if at any point you've sort of walked away and kind of gone your own direction and done your own thing, even if it felt like, even, even now if you feel like you're stuck in it, I want to encourage you, the same thing Donnie told me, I want to tell you. God is still waiting for you to loop back to that place where you made a bad decision and for you to sell out to making a good decision and say, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to sell out to it. Because if you do that, God can still take you to the pathway of blessing that he's always wanted to take you to and that together you can experience an amazing life. Okay, thank you so much for being here this weekend. Next weekend we're going to continue on with the return of the thing. <laughs>